We tend to get caught up in these other conversations about misinformation and disinformation and is this true or is this not? I wanted to have us think about what is going on behind the scenes that makes all of this work. And if we understand that better, then we can start asking better questions about the information that we see. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci, and today... We are going to explore an idea that maybe a lot of people haven't thought about yet. So we all know that the advent of social media has definitely had an impact on our present, and it doesn't take a very big stretch of imagination to imagine how social media will continue to impact and change our future. But very few have considered how social media can actually be changing our past. And to talk with us about that today, I have invited Jason Steinhauer. Jason is an author, public historian, podcast host, and founder of the History Communication Institute. And he's also the creator of History Club And he's a global fellow at the Wilson Center. Jason is passionate about creating an educated, informed, and historically and media literate literate citizenry. Jason has served as the founding director of the Leapage Center for History in the Public Interest. And he is currently a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute a contributor to Time and CNN, and past editorial board member of the Washington Post, Made by History section. Jason is also a presidential counselor of the National World War II Museum, and he worked for seven years at the U.S. Library of Congress. Now, in 2020, Jason founded the History Club on Clubhouse, which he hosts regularly, and the club already has more than 100,000 members and averages 2,500 participants every week. And in 2021, he founded the first cryptocurrency devoted to history, dollar sign Jason coin. This coin will be used to provide grants for public facing history projects. And perhaps one of the most relevant things for our conversation here at the author's corner is that Jason is the author of the recently released book, History Disrupted, which examines how history gets communicated on the World Wide Web and how this impacts not only our perceptions of today, but our beliefs and perceptions about the past. So without further ado, I welcome you to tune in And let's hear what Jason has to share. So Jason, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's such a pleasure to have you here. And I remember 
back when this book was in its pre-infant, its embryonic stage. <laughs> That's a good word for it, actually. It took a long time for it to gestate. <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, we had a few conversations about your book and I'd love it if you just share a little bit with our listeners about how the idea for your book came about and maybe some of the things about what you were contemplating in this embryonic stage. I think it would be a great yeah. place to start. So this book took about five and a half years to write, but the ideas for it actually came even earlier than that. I used to work at the Library of Congress. And when I worked at the Library of Congress, we used to bring scholars in from around the world to do research in the library's collections. And one of the scholars that we had was a scholar in astrobiology. His name was David Grinspoon. And David was a scientist, but he also was what he termed a science communicator. So he basically, he and his colleagues thought critically about how scientific information gets conveyed through various media forms and how to best communicate science in order to affect public policy. And so I got interested in this idea of science communication, and I suggested to my colleagues in the history profession that we should have something called history communication. So basically taking a page from the sciences, we should think critically about history and how it gets communicated through traditional media and social media and how that is changing and affecting people's understandings of the past. So a group of us got together and we started to develop curriculum around this. We developed some coursework. There's actually now a history communication lab at Wayne State University at result out of all this. But the more I looked into it, the more I thought there was actually a bigger story to tell here about how the web had reshaped what we know about the past and how we think about the past. So I began doing research and taking notes. I changed jobs. I changed cities. I got married. We bought a house. So I kind of put the book aside. And all that time, I kind of felt like someone was going to write this book because there was so much about how social media has changed politics and journalism and all aspects of our lives. But no one had written a book about how social media had changed history. So in 2019, I finished the first draft. In 2020, I finished the second draft. In 2021, I finished the third draft. And here we are in 2022. And the book is out. And here we are. And here we are. And I remember, if it's okay to ask you about this, but I remember there was a period where you were debating whether to go the academic route or the mass market route. Would you be willing to share with our listeners about that? Because I think that's an interesting thing to consider that we don't get to talk about very often. Yeah. So I always had the sense that I always had the sense that this book would have a broader appeal beyond just other historians, because again, it's really a book about social media and we all use social media and we're all grappling what social media is doing to our lives. And so it was from that perspective that I wanted to approach commercial publishers and say, Hey, look, like you guys publish about social media. You've got all kinds of books about social media affecting all kinds of various things. Like, But I had heard, you know, in the process of doing that and talking to literary agents and also people I got connected to at the major publishers, I just kept hearing from people that this was going to be too niche for the major commercial presses, which, of course, during this moment, right, you have to remember, this was during the Trump administration. So anything, people, all they wanted to write about and cover was Trump. Books about Trump, books about the White House, book about the Republican Party and conservative movement. That was like the major thing. So this, while germane to that, wasn't quite that. And I even got advice from people that said, hey, if you make your book about Trump, you know, it'll be easier to sell it. But that's not the book I wanted to write. So ultimately, I wound up going with an academic press that would let me write a book that was written in a journalistic style that was intended to be a crossover title 
but still gave me the freedom to pursue some of the more intellectual ideas that I wanted to explore. And it actually worked out because they also peer reviewed the book, which was helpful. So that gave me some additional things to think about that I wouldn't have gotten through the commercial process. And most importantly, I think the people at the press, it was actually Palgrave Macmillan that published it. They really cared about the book. They wanted to see it succeed. And the editor that I worked with really took a lot of time out of her schedule to read the various drafts and give me really thoughtful commentary. And so that's ultimately why I went with them for a combination of all those reasons. Yeah, I was so thrilled when I looked at the publisher and I saw where you landed because it just seemed like a perfect match for what you wanted to do, which is Yeah, and you know, I think one of the things about academic publishing, which uh, is not great, is that uh, they don't pay very well, if at all. And so (laughs) I was right. The book has proven to have appeal beyond just historians, lots of journalists and scientists and people in foreign policy and just general people interested in history are reading it. But- With the academic press, you don't get the big advance. You don't get good royalty rates. So you lose out on that when you don't go with a major publisher. So that's kind of a bummer. And the other thing, of course, with the academic presses is that they don't actually give you a lot of support on the sort of copy editing angle of things, right? So I kind of had to do all that myself, Mm. which is why it took me an extra year really to finish the book because I literally just read this thing 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times, you know, looking for ways to trim down sentences, periods and commas and dashes and M dashes and fixing the index and fixing the footnotes and like all that stuff took a lot of time. And I had to do all that myself. Yeah, that's a heavy lift. I'm familiar with all of those. (laughs) So speaking of books, and as I was contemplating our interview, knowing it was coming up, And I started to think about, well, if there's one way that history has been related for a long, 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 long time, probably the oldest way of relating history besides orally is in books. And so I'd love for you to share with us a little bit, like, what are some of the, if we looked at it through this lens of like comparing and contrasting what's going on today with so much of history being discussed and conveyed on social media versus what really used to be the primary, unless you were receiving an oral history, you'd be reading about it in a book. And so could you compare and contrast for us some of the key? It's a big question. I know we've got time though. (laughs) I will not start at Gutenberg and move forward. That'd probably be too much for the time that we have. Right, right. (laughs) um, I can say a couple of things. So first of all, One thing that actually came up in the research for this book, which I did not include in the book, but could have, and will probably include in my newsletter at some point, is this notion that ever since there has been a professional discipline of history, which the professional discipline of history is not that old. It dates back to the 19th century, right? So we haven't really had professional historians for all that long. The history of history, which I did not know. Okay. Right. But (laughs) part of that history of history is that professional historians have pretty much since their inception complained about the fact that the general public does not know enough about history. And in fact, if you look at the remarks from the American Historical Association in like the 1920s, I think, or even 1930s, you will find keynote addresses where the professional historians are lamenting about how little history books people are actually reading and how little people know about the past. So one thing this book is not is it's not sort of a nostalgic ode to prior eras where somehow we have this misperception that everybody was just reading books all the time and so literate and so well-informed. And today, isn't it a shame that we're not as well-informed as our grandparents were? 
That's not what this is about. And I wouldn't be able to say that that was an accurate statement anyway. Right, right. Um, we have to keep in mind, of course, too, that in the past, people weren't allowed to learn to read, and particularly about people of color and women, mm-hmm. right? So it's not even, we have a much more literate populist than we do now compared to prior eras. So there's that. Mm-hmm. But also, it's not as if people have always been reading history books every night before they go to bed, regardless of what era you're in. So I think what this book tries to do is it tries to understand a phenomenon which heretofore has not been explained, which is what does it mean to consume and learn historical information through the web and social media? And what does that do to our understandings of history? And I argue in the book that it actually does not improve understandings of history at all. At least there's no evidence that I can find that it does. It's not necessarily a comparative thing to say that our understanding is now better or worse than it was in the 1940s or 1920s or 1890s. It's just that right now we have this paradox of so much historical information around us and on our phones and screens every single day, and yet it doesn't seem to actually produce a much more historically literate or informed citizen. So that's kind of the paradox and the issue that I wanted to raise in this particular book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that one thing that is interesting, because when we're looking at any time that we're receiving historical knowledge or opinions, it's generally curated by somebody, right? Whether it's in your school system and you're receiving a certain version of history of how this country was founded, for example, or it's on somebody's blog on social media, there's always a lens, right, that it's being delivered through, Yeah. So this book, I think one of the things we tend to focus on when it comes to social media is we tend to focus on outputs. And so this question is about outputs, right? What we actually end up seeing on the screen and whether or not it is biased or accurate or objective or whatever. And I think it's important to have those conversations about outputs, but actually this book wants to shift that conversation a little bit to think about incentives and the Mm. mechanisms. So this book actually is organized by mechanisms. So what mechanisms on the web allow historical information to reach your eyes in the first place? And which mechanisms actually prevent historical information from ever being seen by you? So I'll take an example just to make this concrete. The third chapter of the book is about something I call the crowdsourced past. It talks about how the web privileges crowdsourcing. And so if you can crowdsource information about history, you can have it rise up in the feed and get it seen by people. Whereas if you're not able to crowdsource something, you will never see it. And this has lots of interesting implications for what we know about the past. Because for example, I talk about a case study in Japan where far-right nationalist groups have used message boards and crowdsourcing sites like 4chan and Reddit and 8chan to crowdsource up to the surface really nefarious interpretations of Japanese, Chinese, and Korean history, so much so that it becomes integrated into the mainstream, actually gets cited by Japanese politicians. So this is an example of the crowdsource past rising up information to the feed that we otherwise wouldn't see. But then in the same chapter, I talk about how there was a historian who actually tried to update a Wikipedia page with some information that he learned through his research And the crowd actually prevented him from including that information on the page because they said that the single voice of an expert should not be able to overrule the crowd. So in that instance, the crowd (laughs) actually prevents factual information from ever making it onto Wikipedia. So these are things that I feel like people don't think about. 
when we think about mm-hmm. the web, we tend to get caught up in these other conversations about misinformation and disinformation and is this true or is this not? I wanted to have us think about what is going on behind the scenes that makes all of this work. And if we understand that better, then we can start asking better questions about the information that we see. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and I know you also talk about journalism, right? And that's where I got my initial experience in publishing. And I was a trained journalist, not a self-proclaimed journalist. And I say that because in the canons of journalism, right, there's a lot of really strictness around getting the facts and getting confirmable facts and going to sources that actually have the information. And it seems like it's more of a free-for-all on the web is my interpretation. And how well, does think, that impact our how we understand history? Yeah, I think a couple of things. So one, the web has removed many of the gatekeeping mechanisms that used to be in place for professions like journalism, history, and science. And so it's not a, not a coincidence that journalism, history, and science have all been grappling with similar issues over the past two decades, because those disciplines have come into being based on linear models of gatekeeping and credentialism. So what do I mean by that? And publishing also has been one of those industries. So let's throw them in. Let's throw publishing in as well. Yes. Continue. And what's interesting about that is I actually, the more I've learned about publishing, the more I kind of think of it as an extension of journalism because Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. so incestuous, those worlds. But anyway, I take your point. Publishing, absolutely the same way. There's sort of like in the history world, for example, there is sort of this linear path that you were expected to take in order to be able to call yourself a historian. You would get an undergraduate degree, then you get a graduate degree, then you do a PhD under the mentorship of a professor, and then you'd be an assistant professor, an associate professor, and finally a full professor. And it's kind of like there's an expectation that you would follow that linear path and that the credentialism and the credentials bestowed upon you by other experts would allow you to speak with expertise and with authority. Well, the web has completely blown that up, right? And the same is true of journalism, the same is true of science, same is true of publishing. And so one of the themes that I found when researching this book was how on the web, you have these contestations over authority and power and who gets to speak in all of these fields. And so much of the past two decades, the rhetoric from all these professions has been sort of talking out loud and thinking out loud about how to deal with this, Mm -hmm. right? And the response from journalism has been to call things that are not made by journalists fake news or to call them unreliable or to say that the New York Times, for example, or the Washington Post, for example, changing their masthead into these marketing campaigns that sort of lionize the profession of journalism as compared to others. And historians have done the same thing. Historians have lashed out against history accounts that weren't run by historians or lashed out at pundits who speak like historians but don't have history degrees. So again, a lot of this isn't about the actual information. It's about who has the power and the authority to speak in the public sphere and who deserves to be listened to and who deserves to have a platform and who doesn't. And so I think what the book tries to do is it tries to, again, get below the surface of these debates and kind of like see them for what they are, which is debates over power, debates over authority, debates over prestige, and debates over gatekeeping and credentialism, and also debates about money. Because in journalism, for example, like there's huge money at stake if people don't go to the New York Times or the Washington Post for their news, and instead they go to Reddit or Facebook or Google. And the same is true for professional history. And I talk about this at the end of the book. 
There is so much history, quote unquote, available for free now on the web. The question is, is anybody willing to pay for professional history? And increasingly, we have seen that people are not. People are not taking history classes. They're not enrolling in history courses. They're not majoring in history. They're not paying professional historians to contribute to news magazines or write op-eds. Museums are getting underfunded. History departments are getting cut. So there's a real existential crisis for the profession, which is why the book is called History Disrupted. Mm -hmm. And it comes from these same forces that have unmoored these other professions. Well, you know, I think that there's this tension, and I don't even know how it would be resolved, but there's this tension between vetted, trained professionals, you know, seeking and sharing information, but it's a club, right? (laughs) And there's a velvet rope around this club. And then there's this, on the other side, there's this democratization of information and ideas And I can see the value of both, but it seems like it's just created a lot of tension where everybody's just kind of landed in one camp or the other, where they're pointing at the other camp and saying, you're wrong. Yeah. And like I said before, this book is not a nostalgia for 20th century history where everybody who got to practice history looked like me. I mean, (laughs) there's a real value to diversity and there's a value to making the table bigger and the tent bigger. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that is you want people to actually know what they're talking about when they make claims. And sometimes you can't really know what you're talking about until you've developed a deep expertise. And so that's the rub, right? That's the challenge that needs to be bridged. And I can say, I don't feel like the history profession has actually done a great job of figuring this out over the past Mm -hmm. two decades, right? We Mm -hmm. still have some people in the profession who want to build these walls and put these gates up. And then we have other people who are diverse and from different backgrounds and speak different languages and have different stories. And- We can't get them in because they don't want to major in history. They don't want to take history classes and they don't think they'll be able to find a job when they graduate. So history is in a real tough spot. There are a lot of headwinds facing the profession and all those headwinds are articulated in the book. Yeah. And it's not just history. I know journalism is, like you said, journalism is having a similar crisis too, right? Where a lot of newspapers have been eaten up by bigger media companies. And so there's fewer positions and lower pay and there's a lot of people who just writing articles and publishing in different ways. And so. And journalism yeah. also has a diversity problem. Oh, and yes. And that's exactly. another thing that I think maybe yes. the journalism industry and has. so does wanted- publishing. Yes. Publishing has a massive diversity problem, which became very public not too long ago. Like, well, really. That, yeah, that's funny yeah. you mentioned that, right? Because in this process of pitching agents and talking to publishers, both academic and commercial, and like everyone's white. Like I didn't encounter anybody who was a person of color and it was startling to me. I didn't realize it because I didn't know that world as intimately as I know academia and government and other places, but it's phenomenally white. (laughs) And listen, it's not necessarily like, well, how do I put this? No one can change their skin color. We are who we are. We're born how we're born, right? But you do have blind spots based on your upbringing and your race and your background and your ethnicity. And so it's an interesting exercise to think about what blind spots these industries have and what they're not seeing because everyone in the industries in positions of power looks the same and comes from the same backgrounds. Exactly. Yeah. And there was, I don't know if you recall, there was a big Twitter storm. Gosh, it must have been, I want to say maybe summer of 2020. Novelist Jesmyn Ward posted hashtag publishing paid me. And 
it really outed the vast differences in the size of advances for uh, white authors versus authors of color. And the publishing industry was pretty embarrassed and they responded. Each publishing house responded with their own new initiatives for DEI, <laughs> it, not just with among taking on authors, but also internally with their staffs. But there's a long way to go still. <laughs> It's just, yeah, and it's just a beginning and then hopefully they'll continue. But it's I think these things, they do need to be intentional. Right. It's mm-hmm. like you do need to have initiatives. You do need to have people who are paying attention to these things because it is so easy to fall into patterns. Right. In patterns of hiring and patterns of recruiting people that you know, or that you work with, or who are in-house, or have been doing things for a long time, or that you're comfortable with, or that you're familiar with. And sometimes these things just sort of happen implicitly without you really being even fully cognizant of what's happening. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of the issues in publishing, I would say, I don't think that they're consciously being racist, but <laughs> but the, the results show up yeah, in that way. And do you think that, because I mean, I think that this really ties to why we're seeing other voices emerge that aren't connected to these institutions, because have they really been invited to these other institutions or have they been offered a seat at the table in the past? Do you think that that's influencing why we're seeing so many freelancers or say, you know, I don't know how you want to describe these other. There's a lot of things going on in the history profession. One of them is that there are no jobs. Right. And so that's connected to this question of funding and support. In the book, I make the argument that that's all tied to this larger disruption of history. Mm -hmm. But history departments across the country are being consolidated. They're being moved into other departments. Professors are retiring and their jobs are not being replaced. And so there's real scarcity of jobs, which creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of tension, a lot of competition. And that's not healthy. And then when there are needs to teach history courses, universities and departments are hiring adjuncts as opposed to offering full-time positions. And Mm -hmm. adjuncts get paid very little money. There have been, unfortunately, these stories about adjuncts living out of their cars or sleeping in tents because they can't even afford rent in the towns where they teach. Wow. And so you have people who want to teach history but can't get a full-time job because there are none of them. And the only jobs they can get are adjunct jobs. And those jobs maybe last for a year or two until they have to move to another place and totally uproot their whole life. And so it creates these conditions where there's just a lot of unhealthiness in the profession. The people are on edge. The work environments are toxic. There's no guarantee of job security. There's no guarantee of benefits. And then you have young people, particularly young people of color, who are looking at majors And they're saying, if I get a history major, do I really want to go into that environment and try to find a job and support myself? Right? Right. Like I'm going to college to better myself and uplift my community and my family. I'm going to go into medicine or I'm going to go into engineering or I'm going to go into law because those are professions where I feel more confident that I can get a really good full-time job that will provide for my family and pay me benefits. And I saw this firsthand. I used to volunteer in DC with an organization called Esperanza, which gave college scholarships to immigrant students. I was on the board of that organization for, I think, four or five years. We didn't have a single kid come through that program who majored in history. Wow. And I would always ask them why, because I worked at the Library of Congress at the time. And it's the same answer. Like, 
I'm doing this because I'm the first person in my family to go to college or my parents are immigrants. They didn't get a chance to go to college. So I got to go to college. I want to uplift our community and our family. And for me, that's going to be through engineering or medicine or law or business. It's not going to be through history. So it creates this cycle. And mm-hmm. that makes it just even more difficult to diversify the profession and get different people into the fold. When I think about that, it's because I'd like to hear in your own words, because I have some of my own ideas, but I think it's so important that we understand history for a number of reasons, right? <laughs> uh, to really just understand like where we are now. It's very, I think, to have some sort of point of reference for where we've been, either in the far distant past or even in the recent past. Like, for example, Jason, one of the things that I found absolutely horrifying is how few people know that there ever was such a thing as a fairness doctrine. <laughs> you know? And every time we're seeing a Fox News report or an MSNBC report, and nobody's questioning why they're not showing the other side, <laughs> because no one ever knew that that was a requirement of having a broadcasting license. And that went away in the late 1980s. But to not understand that context, how do you understand why we're so, so divided with nobody willing to listen to each other? I think that contributes to it. So, I mean, that's just one example, but of course, as a journalist stands out to me, but what is your point of view on that? Well, Jim Grossman, who's the executive director of the American Historical Association, his favorite hashtag is everything has a history. And whenever something comes up, he always just tweets that, right? So, I mean, medicine has a history, science has a history, business has a history, journalism has a history, politics has a history, international affairs has a history, Russia has a history, Ukraine has a history. So I don't know how you can understand anything of what's going on without knowing things about these things. Right, exactly. But what amazes me is that there are other people who feel like they can, which boggles my mind, right? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, history is critical. You can't know where you are without knowing where you've come from. Yeah. That just like seems to me common knowledge. And you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. And yeah. it's all a continuum. I mean, the past and the present and the future are connected, right? You and I are having this conversation now in the present because we met in the past. And it'll be posted as a podcast in the future. It's all connected. So if you don't know the past of how you and I met, then this podcast doesn't make any sense to you. So yeah, I think history is critical. It's critical both as a profession, people who study it, and just the general concept of history is critical. But yet we live in this world, which is so present and future focused, we oftentimes forget about the past and we forget to support the past. And this book is explaining a phenomenon and sort of raising some alarm bells, but it's also an argument for history itself. Yeah. And I mean, when we look at, because especially when we're looking at some of the crises that we face today, all of those have a history, right? All of our present day crises have a history. And there were things that happened and decisions that were made along the way that have led us to where we are. And if we do understand those, we could actually be a lot more efficient, (laughs) In solving the problems that we have today, if we understood the decisions that were made before, but if we don't even know that they were ever made or what they were, how do we then move on? Or we're just going to make the same bad decision thinking it's a new idea. (laughs) I think that last point is actually the key point, which is even knowing which decisions were made, right? And so that's really key. If you think about governments, for example, Mm -hmm. not just the United States, but governments around the world. They oftentimes make decisions that we don't know about. Yeah. Right. And so one of the things that historians do is we go to archives and we look in 
the records of governments and we say, okay, what decisions were made by which people and what were the consequences of those decisions? And those are not things that you often know at the time. So it is so critical to enable that type of research to be done. Otherwise, we will never know. Exactly. Exactly. And we'll just keep wondering why these things are happening and not knowing what to do. Yeah. Yep. Well, let's... <laughs> we yeah, don't want to end on it. that. We figured Jason. it all out. Yeah. <laughs> so... Any upside? What's the upside here? <laughs> well, the upside is that the book is doing really well, which is, I think that's an upside because it shows that people are actually interested in history mm -hmm. and people are interested yeah. in this subject and this question. And so the publishers were wrong when they thought it was going to be a niche topic. It isn't a niche topic. Lots of people have been buying the book. It's been a number one bestseller in six different categories on Amazon. And so I think that shows that there is an appetite for this conversation and there's interest in this. And I think the other thing that I talk about in the book and just more broadly when I do interviews about the book is that we all created this world. So we have an opportunity to make a new one. Like we were all part of creating this social web ecosystem that we currently operate in. And so we have the power to unmake it. We just have to choose to exercise that power. All these platforms, whether it be Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or Clubhouse, they only have value because we use them and we give them our data. The instant we stop using them, the instant that we stop giving them our data, they no longer have value anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe this book, hopefully this book can start to instigate a different type of conversation about what we want the next iteration of the web to look like. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. And I just want to Thank you so much for coming today and for sharing these insights and helping us to get a little bit more context on how we're sharing about our past and how it impacts our present and future. Well, thank you for having me. And yeah, this was great. If anyone's interested, you can sign up for my newsletter and get more, or you could read the book and see what I have to say about all these things. Terrific. And I hope that our listeners will take you up on that. Thank you again, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.